Well, good morning, Hazelwood. How you doing this morning? It looked like none of you drowned. That's good. I, I kind of felt like it when I was driving over here today. Uh, but it's so good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this opportunity to be able to come and share God's Word with you. To be honest, I wanted to come earlier, but this is the first opportunity. Um, Karen had told me that she didn't think I was ready to come preach to you. Um, she said, I just don't think you're ready for our church. And finally, when the opportunity presented itself, I, I just told her, I said, listen, I, I, I won't preach long. I, I'm free. And uh, don't, it doesn't cost you a thing. And she said, now I think you're ready. So here I am uh, today. Uh, no, she really didn't do that. She's, uh, thank you for her kind words. And Dave, thank you so much. And the rest of the praise team uh, for leading us in the way you have. Dave's been communicating with me for a week or two and letting me know about the service and what was coming. I appreciate him. I love old people, don't you? Um, so I appreciate I've been listening to Dave play since I was a little boy. Uh, so anyway, today I want to share with, uh, with you something that I hope you will not forget quickly or easily. Uh, it's something we ought to remember. I don't know about you, but I've been having a little more trouble as I move along in years remembering things the way I used to remember things. Uh, and it reminded me of the story of two men who were good friends sitting on a park bench one day, and they were sitting there silently for a while, and finally one of the men said to his friend, he said, you know, Ned, I can't remember. Was it you or Bill that died during the war? <laughs> you know, sometimes we just kind of lose it along the way, don't we? But... Um, we do that with spiritual truth sometime, and I hope I'll share something with you today uh, that you'll be able to remember that will be impressed upon your heart. I know you're in a time of transition, and uh, I always tell people endings also mean that there are new beginnings, and God has a plan. And uh, there's a pastor out there that doesn't yet know he's going to be the new pastor at Hazelwood. And you don't even know who he is, and I guarantee you the search committee doesn't know who he is yet. But God has that person. This is a wonderful time for God to begin to prepare his heart and to begin to prepare your heart so that as you stay on mission for Jesus, you don't have to have an active pastor right now to stay on mission. Uh, as you stay on mission for Jesus, you will have a prepared pastor that comes to a prepared people. And it's going to be a wonderful union that God will bring together. So be prayerful. Get excited. Uh, don't get too worried about time. Just let God bring the person in his time that needs to be here as he desires. And I guarantee you, uh, it's going to be an exciting day when he steps into this pulpit uh, as your new pastor. And I know the Pastor Search Committee appreciates your prayers uh, so much. You know, uh, when I was uh, taking my boys out to eat when they were much younger, we would go to a seafood restaurant, and many of you may be familiar with this. You'd walk into the lobby of the restaurant. There was an aquarium there, a container that had lobsters in it. And they would love to run up there to the, 
to the container, the little aquarium, and pressed their faces against it. They were fascinated by that. One time, one of the hostesses came and actually pulled a lobster out of the tank, and that was about as close as they wanted to get to it, to be honest with you. But uh, I heard a friend saying one time that he had taken his children there, and I think one of his girls said, Daddy, look, the lobster's hands are tied up. And, of course, you know, they put the little bands around the claws. It, it keeps them from hurting each other, really, and uh, as well as anybody who would pick them up. But as I thought about that, about the, the hands being tied, there's a passage of Scripture that causes you to ask a couple of important questions. And, of course, I'm not smart enough to answer those questions. I have to depend, like you do, on the Word of God. And the Word of God gives us the best answer to the questions. But there are a couple of interesting questions. The first question is this. Is it possible to amaze Jesus? Now think about that for a moment because you're talking about the one who knows everything. You're talking about the one who knew exactly what he was going to do when he came to this earth. Who knew what was ahead of him. That's why we find him in the garden praying, nevertheless, Father, not my will but your will be done because he knew the cup that was in front of him so is it even possible to amaze Jesus well scripture gives us the answer the second question is this can the hands of Jesus be tied because that speaks to his omnipotence his ability to do anything after all, he made blind eyes see, he made crippled limbs whole, he raised the dead to life. But is it possible for the hands of Jesus to be tied? Now, all of you may have an initial response to that in your own heart and mind. But I think it's important to go to the Word of God. And we're going to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ today and our response to him. And I hope and pray as I share this message entitled, How a Church Could Amaze Jesus uh, that God will bring it to bear upon our hearts today. I want you to look in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 1. And one of the things you have to remember about the background of this passage in chapter 5, Jesus has been performing miracles, one right after another. He meets a demon-possessed man, a man that many people would have said was insane, had all kinds of problems. Jesus knew he was possessed by demons, and he cast the demons into a herd of pigs. And you remember some of the people even got upset about that. Uh, you know, a lot of people are this way with God. God, solve our problem, but please save our pigs. Uh, but Jesus delivered that man. There was a woman who touched Jesus as he was on his way to see the daughter of the synagogue leader. And when she touched him, she was made whole. She had had an issue for years. And immediately she was healed. And, and he goes into this home and he raises the daughter of Jairus. And so he's coming off all these great miracles that have taken place. And he's headed back to his home country. And you would have thought they would have had banners in town saying, Welcome Jesus. Uh, he had become somewhat known. Uh, Welcome back, hometown boy done good. Listen to the story, beginning in verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? 
And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now notice verse 5. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And notice the first part of verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Two lessons we need to learn about Jesus from this passage and one lesson we need to learn from ourselves about this passage. But I do want you to know on the front end, and I'll show it to you as we walk through the text, Hazelwood can be a church that amazes Jesus. And we just need to understand what that means. First of all, I want you to notice in this story, the the first thing that just pops out to me is we have a reminder of the fearlessness of Christ. Now, what's the opposite of fear? Faith. Uh, Faith in God, faith in his power, faith in his strength, faith in his mercy, faith in his love, faith in his grace. And when Jesus goes back to his hometown, he has absolute fearlessness. You say, well, why do you say that, preacher? Because he went to the synagogue that day knowing full well what awaited him. That didn't surprise Jesus. Jesus didn't get into the synagogue and begin to receive some uh, pushback and some skepticism and say, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. One of the things we know about Jesus, he, he was never surprised by anything. He was doing the will of God. And he was going there because he knew that he needed to bring the message that God had given to him. And one of the things that we need to understand is doing the will of God is often hard. It's not always easy. We're not always going to go through easy times in our lives. We're not always going to go through easy times in our churches. Now, discipleship costs something. And so Jesus goes into the synagogue, goes back to his hometown, knowing full well that they weren't going to respond to him. Uh, in necessarily a pleasant way. His own country. Jesus didn't expect a hospitable welcome, but you know why he did what he did? Because he was on a mission. You, You see, we never expect to be in some of the circumstances we're in sometimes, individually or as a church. But the question then becomes, am I on a mission or not? Has the master given me something to do or not? And if I'm on a mission, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are that's going on around me. I'm going to be faithful to do the thing that God has called me to do. You see, Jesus described his mission in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 10. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So when you ask the question, why did Jesus go there to seek and to save the lost? Why did he go back to his own hometown when he knew they wouldn't receive him well? Because Jesus was there to seek and to save the lost. Why has God put Hazelwood right here, this church, in this community? Because God wants to see the lost sought out and come to faith in him. What's the mission of the church that God has given? Regardless of what day we walk in or what circumstances we happen to be in. To seek and to save the lost. 
You see, Jesus didn't spend a lot of time worrying about what people thought. Did you know we spend far too much time consumed with what people think? And a lot of times what we're thinking about what people think isn't even right. But Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. And if we make all of our decisions on the probability of unpleasant circumstances, where's the growth in that? Where's the faith in that? If everything is supposed to just go well all the time, where do we grow? I can look back over my life and I can point you to the times of my greatest growth and they were never associated with having it easy. It was always something hard. It was always a struggle. It was something that I was going through where I had to cast myself totally at the feet of Jesus Christ. But that's where the blessing is. And we need to understand, if we can't trust God in the tough times, we're probably not trusting God in the good times. We're just coasting. And let me remind you of what Jesus thinks about coasting. It's called indifference, complacency. Some people call it lukewarmness. In Revelation chapter 3, when the message is given to the church at Laodicea, Jesus said, I, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you, spew you out of my mouth. So the fearlessness of Christ reminds me that we're to be a people that walk in faith. But there's something else we see about Jesus. We have a reminder of the faithfulness of Christ. And here's what I say. If you ever look in the Gospels, maybe you've never thought about it this way. Have you noticed how many times Jesus shows up at the synagogue? He went to the synagogue. I love the fact that I can tell people, you know, when Jesus walked on this earth, he went to church. He showed up in the place where they opened the scriptures and read the scriptures. As one person said a long time ago, it is wonderful when a man of God takes the word of God and teaches the people of God in the power of the spirit of God in the church of God for the glory of God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He went to church to share God's message with them. So how did they respond? Well, I want you to notice what it says here. First of all, it says they were astonished. Where did he get these things? What, what is it that he's saying here? Why is he speaking with such authority? How is it that he's able to do all these miracles he's been doing? Now, the word astonished is kind of an interesting word in the Greek language. I, I was telling the folks in the first service this morning, uh, I came from Mississippi 26 years ago. And uh, in Mississippi, we had a statement when we were surprised or astonished by something. Uh, we'd say we were flabbergasted. You ever heard that? They're just flabbergasted. Well, that's what they were. They were astonished. The word in the Greek language literally means to strike by blow. If I came up to you today after the service and you're standing there and you're not even expecting this, and I take my hand and I shove you in the chest, what are you going to do? You're going to fall back. Well, that's literally what the word means. They, were, they sat back. They, they were kind of stunned by what it was that Jesus had to say. And so the scripture reminds us here that they didn't quite know how to respond to Jesus. You know the sad thing here? Jesus had grown up in that community. They had gotten used to Jesus. They, they said, well, uh, we know who his mother is. We know who his sisters are. They had missed perfection in their midst. And I'm afraid in our country today, we don't treat Jesus as someone special. And they had gotten to the point where they didn't treat Jesus as someone special. And I want you to know it can even happen in the church. 
You know, I'm not talking about mockery. I, I could imagine a church ever making a mockery of Jesus, but I can tell you we can become indifferent to who Jesus is. We can become complacent about who he is. When, when the person of Jesus Christ and the ideas of Scripture, the promises of God, the commandments of God become so commonplace to us that they no longer stir us, then I want you to know we're in danger. And when it comes to Jesus, I think we're even in danger in our churches today. I preached last Sunday in our church. Uh, if you love anything more then you love Jesus. And there's a lot of good things to love. We love our family. Now, we can love our church family. But if you love anything more than you love Jesus, you're in trouble. And so the people were having problems with that. Notice what they did. They ask a question here in verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary? Now that's an interesting question. Because in that day, you never referred to a son by the name of his mother. In the Jewish culture, you referred to a son by the name of his father. They would have said something like this. Is this not the son of Joseph? But no, they said, is this not the son of Mary? And what you don't read in between that sometimes is the insult. You remember the story, don't you? Mary and Joseph are engaged to be married. Mary gets pregnant. Joseph finds out. He's thinking about putting her away privately. Angel comes to him and shares with him what's going on. He took unto himself his wife. Can you imagine in a small town some of the gossip that went around? Well, I'm not even sure Jesus is the legitimate son of Joseph. Well, I've got news for you. He wasn't. He was the son of God. That child had been placed in the womb by the Holy Spirit of God. But you can kind of imagine some of that. They would not even refer to Jesus by the name of his earthly father. And it wasn't because they had respect for God Almighty. It was an insinuation. They were offended at him. In fact, the scripture says here at the end of verse 3, So they were offended at him. And the word offended means stumbling block. They stumbled at him. And so Jesus says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country among his own relatives and in his own house. You've probably heard these two statements. Number one, familiarity breeds contempt. And that's how they were treating Jesus. But the second statement is enchantment comes from afar. Have you ever noticed you can bring somebody from a distance in to say the same thing that you've been saying and yet they're the expert? I I was telling the folks earlier, I said, you know, it's been amazing to me through the years. I brought in all kinds of people and Sunday school experts and all of this, and they'll stand there and teach our people. I I remember one particular occasion, uh, I was, uh, I had a member come in to me and and, uh, the guy had been teaching exactly what we've been teaching in our church about how to organize this and do this. And they said, Pastor, that was so great today. You know, he said, if you do this and if you do this and if you do this, th- this is how this will work. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I've been teaching that for 10 years. But you know what? He was the expert. Enchantment comes from afar. Let me just tell you this, church, never get over Jesus Christ. Never become too familiar with Jesus. He's not just your buddy, he's your master. He's the Lord God. 
He's not half God and half man, but he's fully God and fully man. All man is if no God. All God is if no man. The God-man, the Bible says. And this book right here, have you ever thought about it? Every bit of it from the book of Genesis to the last book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. We should never take him for granted. In fact, in the book of Genesis, Jesus is our creator in Exodus. He's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the water in the desert. In Deuteronomy, he's our eagle wings of deliverance. In Joshua, he's commander of the army of the Lord. In the book of Judges, he is the Lord of peace. In Ruth, he is our redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he's the prophet, priest, and king. In 2 Samuel, he's the rock of salvation. In 1 Kings, he's the builder of a temple that will never fail. In 2 Kings, he's the reigning King In 1 Chronicles, he's the son of David that's come to rule. In 2 Chronicles, he's the king who reigns eternally. In Ezra, he is the priest proclaiming freedom. In Nehemiah, he's the one who restores what is broken. In Esther, he's the protector of his people. In Job, he is the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he's our song in the morning, and he's our song in the night. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom and strong tower. In Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning for life. In the Song of Solomon, he is the author of faithful love. In Isaiah, he's our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he is the son of man. In Daniel, he's the son of God walking in the midst of the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband. Even when we run away. In the book of Joel, he's the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's the one who delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he's mighty to save. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, he casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he proclaims future world peace. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he's the warrior who saves. In Haggai, he restores our worship. In Zechariah, he is the Lord and King over all the earth. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness that brings healing. And then you travel over those 400 silent years and you get to the New Testament. In Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, is the Messiah who is King. And in Mark, He's the Messiah who is a servant. And in Luke, he's the Messiah who is a deliverer. And in John, he's the Messiah who is God in the flesh. And in Acts, he's the spirit who dwells in his people. And in Romans, he's the power of God unto salvation. In 1 Corinthians, he's our conqueror over death, our resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he's the down payment of what is to come. In Galatians, he is our inheritance. In Ephesians, he's our peace At the right hand of the Father in Philippians, he is the God that supplies all our needs. In Colossians, he's the one that holds supreme position in all things. In 1 Thessalonians, he's our comfort in the last days. In 2 Thessalonians, he's our coming king. In 1 Timothy, he's our crown of righteousness. And in 2 Timothy, he is Christ our helper and he is Christ our hope. In Philemon, in Titus, he's our hope. In Philemon, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he is the great high priest. In James, he is the great physician. In First Peter, he's our hope in times of suffering. In Second Peter, he is the restorer of all things. In First John, he's our love and light. In Second John, he's Christ who's come in the flesh. In Third John, he's our prosperity, health, and peace. In the book of Jude, Jesus is the Lord coming with 
10,000 of his saints. And in Revelation, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the one who is going to come and make all things new. Never get over Jesus and who he is. He is everything to us. And the people had forgotten who Jesus really was. We see the fearlessness of Jesus. And we see the faithfulness of Jesus. But the third thing concerns us. We have a reminder of the need for faith in the lives of Christians. Now pay attention to verse 5 closely. It says, now he could do no mighty work there. Have you ever read that phrase? Can the hands of Jesus be tied? He could do no mighty work there. It didn't say he would do no mighty work there. It said he could do no mighty work there. The fact of the matter is he could do no mighty work there because he chose not to. You see, when it comes to the question of can the hands of Jesus be tied, Jesus was capable of doing anything. But Jesus chose to limit himself in accordance with the response of the people. And we know that because of what's said in verse 6 about the people. I love this. It says, except. (laughs) When I read that, that really caught my attention. It says, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty big work to me. I guarantee you, if a few sick people have hands laid on them here at Hazelwood today, crowd's going to be bigger next Sunday. People are going to come and say, what's going on? So what does it mean he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them? What it's saying to us, he could have done so much more. Have you ever thought sometimes we are guilty by our lack of response to Jesus and our faith in him? By tying the hands of Jesus, he could have done so much more. I wonder what it's going to be like if we get to heaven one day and we're shown what could have been done. If we were willing to trust the Lord Jesus. I've often thought about how much of my ministry has been spent sitting in meetings sometimes when we were discussing something that we felt like God was leading in. But it almost seemed like we were a little tentative to do it. It was almost as if we were afraid of putting God in a box. Now, we don't want to put God on the spot here. As if he couldn't come through if he chose to do so. Sometimes we act like we're trying to protect God's reputation. When the fact of the matter is, we may simply not be trusting him in the way we need to. So much more could have been done. This passage could have easily been entitled, What Might Have Been. And folks, I can tell you this, we don't want to get to the end of our life and we don't want to get to the end of our ministry and whatever church we happen to be a part of and have to spend too much time thinking about what might have been. We need to be thinking about what God can do. And here's the problem. When we take our eyes off Jesus, we kind of get to looking at ourselves, we get distracted so easily, don't we? I mean, I've been in church... Uh, A long time. Yesterday, July the 24th, was 47 years to the day that I knelt in my pastor's office 
and gave my life to the ministry. And I've been pastoring 45 years since I was 19 years old, going to school at the time. And all those years, as I've gone through, thinking back to that time when God called me to preach and some of the experiences I've had, I've found out when we take our eyes off Jesus and what he can do, we kind of get our eyes on a whole bunch of stuff. Now, I'm going to share something with you. And since I was here today, I just decided I'd share it with you. Because this happens in other churches, and you've probably never experienced this before, but I'm just going to let you know how it happens sometimes. You know, you can go into some churches and they'll get upset about everything. I mean, I've heard it all. I've heard about whether plants needed to be in the Sunday school room or not. I hear it about, I like that song. I don't like that song. Uh, Should we have a cup dispenser over the water fountain or not? And then you'll get into a discussion, does it need to be the pointy cups or the flat bottom cups? And we just go on and on from flower arrangements to everything in the world. It's amazing to me. And my goodness, the last year and a half, I was feeling sorry for Drew having to make that announcement today. I got to thinking about what pastors have been through the last year and a half. Mask and no mask and standing apart. And I know even when we started kind of regathering, uh, you know, you'd look at people and you didn't know what to do. Do, do you hug them? Do you kind of hold out your hand? Some did jazzy hands. Some did this. I mean, it's been an awkward time. And, and sometimes you get pulled in one direction, you get pulled in another direction, and it reminds me of how easily we get distracted from the very thing that God has called us to do. To seek and to save the lost. Many years ago, uh, and this was many years ago, about 30, 34 years ago, I went to a church to pastor, new pastor. I was having my first business meeting, and every pastor looks forward to those. I just want you to know. (laughs) And, of course, I didn't know anything about the church or whatever. And I had a man come up to me before the meeting started, and he said, you know, we're going to have a recommendation tonight, pastor. We got some pine trees on the back lot, and we're going to... Make a motion to cut down those pine trees. We've been discussing it for seven months. And my first thought was, well, why does it take seven months to figure out whether you need to cut down pine trees? But, but it was a Baptist church, so I understand. <laughs> and so, so we, got, uh, we got up there, and I was moderating the meeting. Like I said, I'm brand new. I've been there a month. And uh, so the motion was made, and I just did what you normally do. I said, uh, Okay, uh, motion made, seconded, any discussion, and somebody raised their hand and said, I'm against it. So I said, okay, what would you like to share? He said, well, I I don't think we ought to cut down those pine trees. It's going to ruin the aesthetic beauty of our property. I said, well, thank you. And about that time, I saw a hand go up, and uh, a man said, well, I'm for cutting the pine trees down. I parked my car back there one time. Storm came along, knocked a limb down, fell right on top of my car. We need to get rid of those trees. They're, they're a hazard. Somebody got up and said, I'm against cutting the pine trees down. Somebody got up and said, I'm for cutting the pine trees down. We got a playground back there. A kid get knocked in the head if a limb falls on him. And then we had another person said, I'm not for cutting the pine trees down. I am for cutting the pine trees down. And I remember standing there thinking, my first business meeting Uh, dear Lord, how do I get out of this? And we had a guy named Sam sat on the back row, left-hand side. I saw his hand, and I just kind of said, yes, Brother Sam, 
And he said, I make a motion that we table this. Well, according to Robert's rules of order, when you table something, it just means you quit and then bring it back up before the meeting is over. If you want to just do away with it in that meeting, the motion is you postpone to a definite time. But I knew my people didn't know that. Uh, They didn't even know who Robert was. They didn't know whether he was a Baptist or saved or anything. And so I took the motion because I knew what he meant was let's get on with it and leave this alone. So we we took the motion. I I walk out of the church that night. When I get there, there's there's a group of people standing uh, at the bottom of the steps. And so when I get there, one of the people says to me, Pastor, what do you think about the pine trees? And I said, well, you know, I'm new here. I kind of need to figure out what's going on and why this is being discussed. Well, you're our pastor. We'd like to know what you think about the pine trees. I said, you really want to know what I think about the pine trees? I don't care one thing about those blasted pine trees. And then I told him, I said, in the service tonight, there was a man sitting over to my left. Did you, did you remember seeing him? And, you know, our church wasn't so large. They couldn't remember guests who were there, especially on a Wednesday night. And they said, yeah. I said, that's a man that I visited in the past week. He's not been in church in 10 years. And I said, the reason he dropped out of church is because 10 years ago he was in church when they had a big discussion in a business meeting and got all riled up about something. He just decided he didn't want anything to do with that. And I said, interestingly enough, on that same road down from him was a man I witnessed to just a few days ago. And I said, this was the night he chose to come. And so I've got a man that's been out of church for 10 years. I've got a man who I've witnessed to that's never been saved. And they show up to church tonight and they hear a bunch of Baptists arguing about whether we need to cut down pine trees or not. So that's what I think. Well, I left and I remember thinking to myself on my way to my office, well, it's been a fun month. (laughs) I may be gone. I don't know. But you know what happened? Now, once again, I'm introducing you to something that you may not be aware of, but there's this thing called the grapevine. Have you ever heard of it? And so they started sharing. Well, the next morning I'm in my office and I get a call. The secretary says, uh, so-and-so's on the phone. I thought, oh, no, that's the lady who didn't want to cut down the pine trees. And So I pick up the phone. She said, Pastor, she said, I've been thinking about it. I don't care if we cut down those pine trees. That's not, that's not big in the scheme of things. I said, oh, well, well, thank you. I appreciate it. We're still going to have to study it, I, but, but thank you for that. A little while later, I get a call from a gentleman, and he was in favor of cutting the pine trees down. He says, Pastor, I want you to know it doesn't matter to me what we do about those pine trees. But you know what had happened during that time? Kind of the word had circulated, and all of a sudden, people got to thinking. What's more important, those trees or those two men? You see, when we lose sight of Jesus and his mission, it's so easy for us to get distracted by other things. Now, the good news is this. A couple of years later, we cut down every one of those pine trees. 
But we didn't make a motion to cut down the pine trees. You know what happened? The church started growing. We needed a new building. We needed more parking. And so a couple of years later, we made the motion to build the building and increase parking. And guess what had to go? The pine trees did. You see, it was all about keeping our focus on what we needed to keep our focus on. But there's something final here I want you to see. And here's where he gets to the amazement part. It says in verse 6, And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Now, Jesus, who knows everything, here's my question to you. What would it take to make Jesus marvel? Uh, It wasn't as if Jesus went through life saying, Oh, I was surprised by that. I was surprised by that. I didn't know they were going to hang me on the cross. I didn't know they were going to do this. He knew all that. So what would it take to make Jesus marvel? It says here, he marveled because of their unbelief. Well, here's the good news. There's another time where Jesus marveled. It's found in Luke chapter 7. Some men come to Jesus and say, there's a centurion. He's been really good to us. And he's helped us. And he's got a servant that's sick. Would you go and heal him? And Jesus takes off. And when he's away from the house, the centurion hears that he's coming and he sends messengers to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. And then he said something real interesting. He said, I'm a man of authority. I know what it's like to be in charge. A centurion was in charge of soldiers. I tell one to go here, go there, and they do it. I tell them to do this and do that, and they do it. I know what authority is all about. He said, Jesus, you just say the word, and I know it will be taken care of. And do you remember what Jesus said? Here's what it says in Scripture in Luke 7. It says, and Jesus marveled. And he said, I have not found so great a faith in all of Israel. In the place he would have expected to find faith, he didn't. But he found it in the heart of a centurion. So here's the question for us today. When Jesus looks at us, when Jesus looks at Hazelwood Church, when Jesus looks at the church that I pastor, does he marvel Because of our faith or our lack of faith. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And I mean this can happen now in our hearts and our lives and our churches. If Jesus looked at us and said to the Father. Father, you see those folks down there? See how they trust me? See how they love me? See how they follow me? Father... I'm about to bless them. I'm about to bless them like they can't even imagine. You see, we can be people, and our churches can be churches that amaze Jesus. If he marveled over one man's faith, don't you think it's possible for him to marvel when we come to him with complete surrender and trust? And my encouragement to you during these days even as you look ahead to a new pastor one day, is to be a church that amazes Jesus. Jesus is already amazing. He doesn't have to impress anybody. But wouldn't it be wonderful to be a church 
that amazes him. And so today I'm going to give a, just a special word of encouragement and invitation. You see, Jesus can save you. He can forgive you. He can cleanse you. He can bring you into his family. If you've never come to a place and point in time in your life where you've said yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But he can also do a work in the church. He has the power to lift the church. He has the power to do great mighty things right here and right now. But we have to look to him completely. Where are you today? If you were to do an honest evaluation and ask the question, Jesus, do I amaze you by my trust in you? What would the answer be? And I'll tell you this, the answer can be yes, if we're willing to come to that place of surrender. As every head is bowed and every eye closed. Heavenly Father, we come to you in these moments just simply asking you to speak into our hearts, to have your way. God, we desire to be a people that reflects you. And our trust in you. And so God may you do your work today in this invitation. May this time be a time where we do business before you. Lord thank you for all that you've done for us. And God I pray for Hazelwood that this would be a time. Where you're able to do exceedingly. Abundantly. Above. All that we could ask or think. In Jesus' name. Amen.